Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. So in today's episode, I'd like to talk about value investing. But before I do that, uh, just a very quick reminder, if you uh, enjoy the podcast, and I certainly hope you do, um, please share it uh, to anyone that you think might also uh, enjoy listening to it. Uh, And most importantly, leave a rating wherever you do listen to it, because it really does uh, improve the rankings and um, uh, make the, the podcast a bit more popular. So Thanks in advance for that. Okay, so let's get into this week's topic, which is really around uh, value investing, uh, which I'm a a very big advocate of, uh, and why um, value investing, I think, will produce superior returns, particularly over the next sort of five to 10 years, uh, certainly over the next five, uh, and help you uh, sort of navigate some of the risks that might be um, present in markets. Uh, and uh, and so therefore you reduce your investment risk and hopefully expose your portfolio to higher returns. Of course, investing is all about investing in quality assets, high quality assets. If you buy a high quality asset and hold it for the long run, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30 years, uh, of course you're going to make a lot of money. Now, if you can buy that same quality asset for a cheap price compared to, you know, its intrinsic value or historic value, then it's likely you'll make even more money. And that's a really crude explanation of uh, value investing. Now, of course, you can use a value investing approach for many asset classes. uh, But today I'm going to talk about shares, mainly because there's a lot more data associated with shares. And also, um, I think that there's some really obvious risks in the share market that uh, that value investing can help us navigate. So let's first then talk about why uh, value investing reduces your risk. So of course, risk is really about not achieving the returns that you hope to achieve or that you expect to achieve. Uh, now, return can be made up of two factors, of course, income plus capital growth. Uh, and uh, quite often uh, most assets provide a combination of both of those two things. Uh, receiving more income reduces your risk because essentially you sort of bank that return each year. So high income uh, returning assets are actually uh, lower risk. Of course, then you have to consider the tax consequences of that because if you're receiving a lot of income, uh, then of course you're paying a lot of tax and depending on your situation, well, Let's put it differently, if you're not retired, uh, then that's not something you really want to be doing. Um, But uh, capital return is going to depend on two factors. It's really how much will the asset be worth in 10 years, 20 years from now. Um, So its ability to uh, improve in value over that period of time. Uh, And then the second factor is what did you pay for the asset? Because if you go and uh, overpay significantly, for an asset, even if it's a great quality asset, you've really given up uh, a portion of that future return. Uh, and of course, you can't expect your capital growth return to be substantial. Whereas if you've paid fair value, or in fact, if you've bought the asset cheaply, uh, then arguably that extends your ability to achieve you know, better growth over time. So really, value investing reduces your risk because if you can buy an asset uh, quite cheaply, and all, then potentially all that asset has to do is come up to its intrinsic value in order to deliver the capital growth return that you were hoping for. And you're not relying on the overall market to push that higher or other fundamentals to push that value higher. 
So the the more value, the deeper value that you can achieve, uh, the the less risk that you have in terms of, or, or putting differently, the, the higher the probability that you will achieve your desired return. So as an evidence-based investor, of course, I always want to see the evidence, uh, you know, to, to, to confirm the approach is going to work. So a little bit of a history lesson, let's have a look as, as how growth versus value has performed. Uh, and the index indexes began in 1979, so there's quite a bit of data. And uh, they've, very, they've actually performed similarly uh, over that period of time. So growth has returned 11.3% and value has returned 11.6%. I mean, you can draw a circle around those returns, essentially say that there's um, not much difference except that between 2018 and 2021, growth has substantially outperformed uh, value. So it returned 24% and value just returned just over 10% uh, over those uh, a few years. So by historical standards, value is now relatively cheap. And let's not forget, I'm attracted to value for two reasons. Firstly, it reduces our risk. And then the second element there is what is going to outperform. Uh, and I think value is positioned to outperform for a few different reasons, uh, three reasons mainly. Uh, firstly, mean reversion is likely to continue to drive higher returns for value. And, and that really already started uh, last year. Last year in 2022, value outperformed growth by around about 21%, which is huge, uh, really reflecting the fact that growth was absolutely smashed. Um, and history suggests that uh, growth will continue to struggle, especially since it's been dominated by a handful of mega cap stocks like Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, etc. And there's a whole bunch of empirical research that suggests me me mega cap stocks rarely continue to outperform forever a and their performance will eventually lag. At least that's what we've seen over the last uh, four or five decades um, and sometimes it's very hard to conceptualize this. You know, um, Apple or Microsoft have such a dominant position in the market at the moment. They've got pricing power. They've got scale. You know, they're, they're very profitable companies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the reality is that the, the likelihood of Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, the, those guys, the likelihood of them all being around and they're all in the top 10 stocks um, say 10 years from now is very low statistically or looking at empirical research it's low and so the, the problem is that we've had only a handful of stocks drive a lot of this growth return um, there's quite a bit of risk there in terms of future uh, about whether they're going to have the capacity to, be able to do that okay the second reason is a really a higher interest rate and higher inflation environment is a lot more challenging for growth stocks so it's not uncommon for growth stocks to really burn through cash because what they're trying to do is invest in their business, not always wisely, by the way, to generate more and more growth. It's all about top line growth, sales, customers, new customers, etc. And for growth businesses, profitability isn't always a, a priority. So in fact, a lot of these growth companies, they're, they're not they're not actually profitable, they don't pay dividends, those sorts of things. So really in order to continue their growth trajectory, they really need an endless source of money since they're spending more money than they're receiving. Uh, and they can only raise money through debt or equity, so shareholders or the banks, bonds, etc. Um, and in a higher interest rate environment, both 
of those sources of capital are a lot more expensive to access uh, and a lot, a lot more difficult to access as well. And certainly sentiment has changed in market, at least over the last six to 12 months, uh, where the market seems to be focusing more on fundamentals, such as profit, cash flow, strong balance sheets, low debt, these sorts of things, and not getting carried away with often irrational growth stories. Uh, particularly like it did in 2020, it wasn't really about you know profitability and the sustainability of the business. It was really about a, a growth story that was driving the market. So growth is going to st- struggle in that environment. And finally, with higher interest rates and the potential of looking down the barrel of a recession, uh, either here, here in Australia or in the US or, or elsewhere, um, it's going to put pressure on company earnings. Uh, and so if the earnings number is going to fall, um, then potentially the multiple also falls. Uh, that creates a, a lot of downward pressure in share prices. But if you're able to invest in a company that's got you know, a good quality business, you know, using an index strategy to invest in a company that has a really good quality business, trading a lower multiple, even if the earnings number comes down a little bit, you'll suffer a little bit of a decline but not as much as a company that's trading in a high multiple with uh, quite lofty sort of earning expectations. So they're the three reasons I think value will outperform growth uh, over the next period of time, but also why value, I think, reduces a portfolio's risk um, compared to, particularly compared to growth or even just broader uh, market cap indexing. Okay, so I'm sure you're thinking, that's great, Stuart, but how do I invest in value? And I'm not suggesting you put all your eggs in one basket, by the way. What I'm suggesting is that you would skew your asset allocation or portfolio um, heavier towards value than you otherwise would in a a very balanced uh, sort of market. Um, There's two ways that you can do it. You can use uh, index funds, some index funds that have uh, valuation criteria, uh, they tend to be international uh, investments, so there aren't any uh, ETFs that are value-based ETFs. Uh, and the the reason or rationale that I've been given is that they're just uh, would be a, a too small a pool of companies that would meet the criteria. I'm not sure that's true, but anyway, that's the um, that's what the ETF providers have said. Uh, so there's two uh, international value stocks that you can look at. There's one by Vanek. Uh, its ticker code is VLUE, uh, and there's one by Vanguard, and its ticker code is VVLU. Uh, so, of course, the links are in the uh, show notes and the blog on the website, of course, um, but they're the two that are sort of broad-based, international with a value overlay. Uh, the second way of investing in value is considering the geographical markets or segments, uh, sectors, I should say, of the market that exhibit the best sort of metrics for value. So which which uh, geographical markets or sectors are, are trading very cheaply. Um, and so, for example, small and mid cap in the US are trade, trading very cheaply compared to large cap. As I just spoke about, there's a lot of mega cap stocks that have really driven the market, growth stocks. And so to accommodate that opportunity, you might use an equal weight indexing in the US, for example, because that's going to skew more of your investments to the mid and small cap stocks and away from the large cap stocks. So by using a particular index methodology in a particular uh, geographical market, um, what you can do is create greater exposure to the portfolio of 
the sectors that represent the best value. Which brings me kind of full circle then of saying, well, Stuart, which sectors uh, or asset classes or geographical markets uh, do you think represent the best value at this stage? Uh, well, I use a tool put together by a business in the US called Research Affiliates. It uses uh, this valuation tool, uses uh, peer-reviewed methodologies that aim to predict uh, future 10-year returns. Um, so it's not something that you'd use to pick, pick you know, what, what the market might do in, in the short run. You know, no, one, no one has developed any reliable tool to, to predict, predict that. Um, but this uh, one of the basis for this model is the what's called uh, CAPE ratio, cyclically adjusted PE ratio, really just a ratio that smooths out uh, earnings over the last 10 years and looks at really the multiples, so how are um, sectors or businesses valued compared to you know historic valuations. Uh, and there's str- quite a strong correlation with subsequent future returns. So there's about a 70% sort of correlation rate, 80% in Australia. So it's not a perfect predictor, but it's a very useful tool. Um, and uh, Research Affiliates uses a whole bunch of other models. I've got a link in the in the show notes if you really want to get into the detail of that. Uh, but essentially um, what it does is it gives us... Uh, estimates of future returns and what I've looked at is uh, the low point being a 75% probability so 75% chance that you'll achieve that return and the high point of the range being a 25% probability so likelihood when you look at probabilities it's going to be somewhere in that range and the three markets all sabbat asset classes that stand out is the UK market the Australian market and emerging markets So the UK market is, um, based on the model, likely to produce a a 10-year return of somewhere between 9% and 13%. The Australian market, 8% and 13%. And emerging markets, 8% and 13%. And using that model, they're the best or most attractive markets at this stage where you would skew your investments towards, well, again, I'm not suggesting you make massive bets in these markets, but you might be overweight UK in your international allocation. You might be overweight emerging markets in your overall asset allocation, overweight Aussie in your overall asset allocation as well. Uh, again, not taking massive bets, but just skewing your portfolios to, to those areas. And also in doing so, using perhaps a value approach to, to do that. Um, and doing that gives you statistically and using evidence-based methodologies that are low cost, Uh, gives you the greatest probability of uh, achieving good quality returns. Now, of course, there's a lot of talk at the moment around, uh, particularly last week, with central banks raising interest rates and being dogmatic about it, uh, almost uh, um, keener to push the economy too far um, and and squash inflation, uh, even if that results in a, a recession and potentially a deep recession. So, um, of course, there's a few headwinds there and natural to think, well, maybe I don't invest at all. Now, I don't think that's the right answer because who knows what the future holds and uh, these sorts of expectations can turn on a dime, can turn very quickly. And really, we need to have the discipline to continue to invest, continue to hold our investments. And we know the evidence suggests that if we do that and we hang in for the long run, that's where the returns are. But the way that you can accommodate these risks is by uh, skewing your uh, investments towards markets that exhibit the fundamentals to achieve better than average returns uh, and uh, potentially 
where possible using a value approach to do that. Now, at the beginning of the episode, I talked about uh, using a value approach and suggested you could do that in many asset classes. Now, of course, I've spent most of the episode talking about share markets just because they're kind of interesting at the moment and there's a lot more data. But of course, we can use a value approach when investing in direct property or commercial property or whatever it might be. Uh, and I've, uh, as an example, I've um, uh, recorded an episode late last year about uh, the market that I think is uh, the most attractively valued at the moment, which is older style investment grade apartments here in Melbourne. Um, and so if you want to sort of check out the reasons why I, I believe that that will benefit from uh, improved demand uh, and mean reversion, uh, you can certainly check out that episode. But you, it's, it's true that you could use a value approach in, in most asset classes. Okay, that's it for me for this week. Until next week, bye for now.